Welcome to the Aspiration Healthcare Podcast. I'm Daryl Moon. I'm the CEO of Orient, and I'm also the founder of aspirationalhealthcare.com. It's my pleasure to have with me today, Dr. Nilda Perez. And I'll tell you just a little bit about her, and then we'll get into a discussion. So Dr. Nilda Perez helps behavioral health organizations to optimize operations and innovate their organization. She positions an organization with high-performing strategies and leading-edge practices. She has about three decades in behavioral health care, first as a clinical social worker and in various leadership roles. She also has a doctorate in strategic leadership with a concentration in strategic foresight, essential for forecasting and helping you design your future, your desired future. All right, Dr. Nildes, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's great being here. Why don't we start off with a discussion about the impact of the pandemic on people's emotions and stress and anxiety. You know, we're just coming out of the pandemic, but give us your insights as to what we've learned and maybe what you've seen during these last couple of years. So um, the last, I want to say like the last decade, there has been an increase in anxiety and depression. Life, life's pressures, it's, it's normal everyday things. However, now um, with, the, with the COVID, this pandemic just took that to the 10th power where the uncertainty was literally just killing people. They just couldn't, they just couldn't handle it. It was, it was very overwhelming. And it just was such a change because it was, if it wasn't one thing, it was another. People, some people were suffering with the isolation. They, that was their, their main uh, focus. Other people had lost jobs. Other people were afraid that they would get the, the, um, the coronavirus or their families and that their families would die. So it was so much pressure. And for other people, it was all of it, you know? Yeah. And um, it just started snowballing from there. Marriages were tested because they were together 24 seven and that made it difficult. Um, families were tested because it was overwhelming being together. So, and then for those that lived alone, they had the opposite, the, the isolation was just, and it was fearful because what the one thing, right? Uh, when it started, they gave, they said two weeks. <laughs> and then three months later, it's still happening. And there was no end in sight. And I found that the deeper we got into it, the greater the fear, the greater the anxiety, the deeper the depression. There's no question that when we don't know what to expect, it increases our anxiety. And, and we lived through two years of not knowing what to expect. Right. Right. Not knowing what to expect, not really knowing where it was coming from and not being able to connect with anybody for fear that you would get it. And yeah. isolation, like we, we're human beings are made for socialization. That was cut off like completely. Yeah. It completely changed. It became virtual instead of in person. That's a different kind of socialization. Yeah. And that's with those that knew. Those That's only for those that understood and can use technology. Yeah. So for those that couldn't, like, you know, the older people, the elderly, they had no connection other than the phone. Yeah. So it was a really trying time because there was no end in sight. There was uncertainty on every level. 
and people just did not know what to do, just did not know what to do. And that just impacted the fear and it just kept escalating. Yeah. That's one of the reasons what we did in order to try to provide some support was we created a website called goingonoffense.com. And we put together tons and tons of just interviews with different people. Sometimes it was professionals like you. Other times it was just the lay mom and dad to just talk about and get the word out and just have these discussions with people about the pandemic and how do we deal with the emotional part of the pandemic. So if anybody's listening to this podcast and wants to check those out, they're welcome to do that. So Dr. Prez, let's go into a little bit about your expertise. Talk a little bit about why infusing innovation in healthcare, particularly behavioral healthcare, is so critical. Infusing innovation in any business, and you know, most a lot of people won't call healthcare a business, but it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it's, it's critical, and in and behavioral health and healthcare is no different. It's it's no different. We need to become more aggressive in in infusing innovation into the the business of healthcare. As we see, things change. Everything has changed. I mean, we couldn't even, I mean, we could go back further, but let's even go back to like 9-11. 9-11 changed our lives. Like it changed travel. It changed, you know, so many, so, you know, it changed checkpoints. It's changed so many things in our lives. And then, you know, and, and this has just continued and, co, you know, the pandemic was another one of those things that changed our lives forever. However, healthcare and behavioral health hasn't changed we are still using the same methods. Why are we using the same methods in an ever-changing world with different, you know, with things changing, why are we still using the same methods? And so that's where I'm, you know, I, when I saw this and I, and I understood this, and that was about 15 years ago, I was like, st- why are we still treating clients in the same manner when the problems are different? And the problems are different, their needs are different, and we're servicing the same way. Why are we so stuck on tradition? And Tell us a little that, bit about some of that innovation. What does some of that innovation look like? When we're, as you've helped organizations change, what does that look like? Well, you know, different organizations have different needs. Understanding where their client is at. That's where you need to, you know, that's where you need to begin. Um, what, who are, what are the needs out there? What are the needs that you're not addressing? So what I, I help them look at is how is their outreach? How is the outreach? Are you out? Are you reaching out to, or do people still have to come to you? Because traditionally, behavioral health, you have to come. You need to see the need. You need to find the need, and then you need to seek us out, and then we'll make an appointment for you. That was the first thing. Outreach is super important. The other thing is how is your follow up? If somebody drops off, are you following up with that client? Where is that client, you know, at the moment? Because And why did they drop off? Mm-hmm. Did they drop off because they no longer have the need? Did they drop off because they were overwhelmed by the need? What exactly is that? They're really, for the most part, there's nothing in place for really good follow-up. Um, then your operations, are, is your, are your operations meeting the needs of the client? We look at that. Why are they, you know, what is going on? How are you actually operating that would make sense for the ever-changing uncertain world. And 
innovating is, are we also prepared for a coming change? How are we preparing for that? So that's how I help organizations. That's how I help, you know, practices. Are you ready for that change? Are you doing, do you have things in place that you know that should there be a change, you can still meet that client? I'm glad you brought up the operations. Because when I think of operations, I think of the culture of the company, both in terms of the leadership, how they treat their employees as though they're customers, but also the operations, the day-to-day policies, the stress that sometimes that can create. And I think specifically of attorney firms, you know, of all the industries, attorneys seem to have some of the greatest stresses as well as some of the greatest suicidal rates. And so that idea of specializing your intervention for the particular organization, their culture needs, as well as operational needs, is important. Do you have any examples of maybe industry or by industry or by company, some things that people have done to try to do a better job of outreach or have done a better job of follow-up or have built cultures that support that? Well, yeah, there, there are, well, some of the companies that I have worked with have been able to change that culture and have become more innovative. So how do they do that? They get, they have more participation from their, their frontline staff and they're do, they do surveys. What are they doing to, what, what is it that the clients need? How can we meet that need? What are, what are the needs that you see and how have things changed? And just really making the frontline staff very much a part of that change, very much a part of where it's going. So if we're gonna make change, you know, it can't just be the leadership who no. doesn't have any interaction with the actual client. Okay, I mean, this is is great. It's a wonderful role to have because in every organization you need a leadership, but is that leadership really understanding what's changing, you know? And so that's super critical. Yeah, well, and I think some of the best examples of organizations that have built wonderful cultures have adopted this philosophy that the mo- one of the most important customers mm-hmm. is your employee, your workforce. And if you'll take care of the workforce, They'll take Mm -hmm. care of your customers. And so some of the best brands across the country have just dedicated that the company's focus, first and foremost, is taking Mm -hmm. care of the needs of the employees. And I think that's a great start. And when you think about them as your primary customer, they'll do what you said. They'll ask the customer what they want. We're really good in this country about asking our customers who buy our products and services how well they like our service and how we improve that. But we're not as good at asking our own employees you know, how are we doing at creating a culture that works for you, that keeps you here, that attracted you to come work here? Or how are we offering benefits that support you and your needs emotionally and physically? Um, mm-hmm. So I love the idea of asking mm-hmm. your customer, particularly mm-hmm. your employees, what do they need? Right. And so, and that's one of the things that the pandemic really was really bad at and continues to be, unfortunately. Um, we're not really taking care of our caregivers, of our providers. And there's a huge need in, in the, both the behavioral health and healthcare in general with us not, being, not taking care of our staff. And one of the things that I said to one of the companies that I, I was working with, I said, um, the pandemic happened to everyone. 
not just to the client, <laughs> like we're all in this together. You yeah. know, the people died, we were isolated. If this happened to everyone, um, you know, people were trying to work with their children in the other room, like going bonkers. You know, all of this happened to everyone. It wasn't, it wasn't isolated. It wasn't just to certain people and we're taking care of them. So taking that into consideration, like, are you checking in on your staff? Are they okay? That's yeah. really, it's critical because they're going to be the ones that need to take care. You know, it's funny. Let me give you an analogy. When you're on the plane, what do they usually tell you? One of the first things they tell you is, you know, when that mask falls, you put it on yourself first. Right. And then you take care of those around you. But we're really bad at that, like really <laughs> bad. We take care of everyone and then we die in the process. And that doesn't make sense because if we're all gone, if we're burnt out, if we can't do the work, then who's left, yeah. you know? And are well, we and, and really being as effective? Are we really being as effective when we're falling apart? Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about what a clinician needs to do, as well as what the organization that maybe hires clinicians needs to do to take care of their well-being. What are some things that you've done maybe to help yourself in taking care of your well-being? And what are some of the examples of organizations that have taken care of their counselors and therapists and psychologists and social workers as they're struggling, or even other providers like nurses and doctors in the more medical world? What are some examples of things you've seen? So um, one of the things that uh, some of the, the companies have put in place is checking in on your, uh, on your staff, uh, checking in on your providers. How's everything going? Are you okay? Then also having somebody for them, having them be able to connect with a counselor, having somebody there who they can just come in and check in. And even if they're just having a frustrating day or if there's something going on at home, that is kept private, but yet is helping them. And if they need time off, giving them that desired time off, you're better off giving somebody, you know, a week off when they need it. And when they come back, they're so much better for it. So they yeah. went and they took care of their situation and now they're better. So, um, and you know what? Sometimes just caring, you know, love goes such a long way and love doesn't mean you're in love. Love means loving your providers, compassion, caring, caring. When you just stop and ask someone how they are, I remember somebody asked me, how are you holding up? How are you doing? And I have to tell you, it was, at first, I was like, oh, I'm okay. And then they were like, no, really, how are you doing? (laughs) And when they asked me that question, I was so emotional. Because then I realized that they really cared. Because right, habitually, somebody asks you how you're doing, you say, "Oh, okay. oh, it's good. I'm okay. I'm okay. Everybody's okay." But yeah. are they really? You know, and that when that person stopped and said, "No, really, how are you doing?" I was like, "Wow, yeah, how am I doing?" And I was able to to express. And um, we're just not good at that. You know, we just think that our providers are superheroes, and well, the superheroes take- are not real. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't take a degree in therapy to show compassion. That's something that we all need to do more of with each other. And like you said, it could be more than just simply saying, how are you doing? But really asking, how are you really doing? I really care about you and I want to listen and I want to be empathetic. Right, 
Exactly. And um, I think if we offered more of that, we would have healthier staff. We would have healthier people around us. And um, I think we can do a much better job if we were able to just stop and ask. Yeah. Well, and it's not that different than what a therapist does with their patients. I mean, in reality, good counseling is about creating that trusting relationship where the person feels they can be vulnerable and open up about their concerns and, mm -hmm. and feel like they're in a safe place and that you really right. care. Because if the patient doesn't feel like the counselor cares, they're not going to be open. They're not right. going to share their thoughts. Talk a little bit about your practice and your working with patients and how you build that trust and that openness. So the first thing I did um, when I decided to open my practice, I knew that it had to be different because you know, I was like, I'm interchangeable. Like the reality is I open up a practice and put up a shingle. I'm no different than the guy next to me, you know? So why would, and my analogy was, why would they come to me? Why would they, if I'm like the last, so I, I use this analogy often in, when I speak to, to my companies and you know, my, the organizations, and I explain to them, if you are um, one of many therapists, or if you are in a block of therapists on both sides, right? But you're the one, the last one on the left. Why would they go through all of those before they get to you? There's gotta be something that you offer that has to be so spectacular that it's worth the walking to the end of the block. Yeah. And so I start, I, when I started thinking that way, I started building on that. Okay, so what are the client's needs? So I started you know, talking to my clients, what are their needs? And so I had um, a couple of doctors and there were fellows, there were new doctors and they worked very long hours, but yet they were dealing with, um, one of them was dealing with pornography and that's how he used to um, like, um, what do you call it? He, that's how he used to like unload his stress and another one had like a lot of stress at home. So both of them were in a place where they didn't want to deal with this stress. However, they were working 36 hours. And after 36 hours, they were too zonked out to come see me. And I was like, okay, so what would work for you? Would, and this was like early, early, you know, it was Skype. So it was even before <laughs> I said, what would work for you? Would Skype work for you? Because maybe you can take your, your lunch hour or your break and we can do like a 30 minute or 60 minute. Virtual. Yeah, yeah, virtual. And so they were like, you would do that? And I was like, is that what you need? Yeah. Yeah, that would be ideal. That would be perfect. Because actually that's my stressor, my long hours. my. And so I started understanding what clients needed. And I started, I started uh, uh, cultivating that, um, that, uh, practice around that, around their needs, around what they cared about, very customer centric. And so I just kept doing that. And, you know, some clients, they needed the face-to-face, -face. they needed to see me, they needed to, and that was fine. I was available for that. And I was also available for virtual. And that was like way before, way, way, way before. Before it became was, common. Oh yeah. It was yeah. Uh, actually, the, you know, a lot of my all my colleagues were upset. They were like, oh, you can't do that, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, this is what 
This is what this client needs. Yeah. This is what they need. This is how they need me. Why would I tell them, well, no, if you can't come in, you're out of luck and nobody else will offer that to them. Yeah. So um, do we start it? That just started that change. And this was 15 years ago. And it just, I kept morphing. Like what are the new needs? What, are, what do they what do they want? What do they need? And the other thing is self-care. Am I healthy enough to be able to take care of them? Mm-hmm. So taking that time for me and breathing. And so what helped me was to have the balance of having the practice and also doing something else. So it wasn't all focused on one area. Well, that was one mm-hmm. thing that really made a difference for me. Nice. So you can do some operations and company consulting in one hand, but then do some practice and therapy with others. You've got a combination. Let's talk a little bit about, you and I have talked before about this idea of the medical model of our job as a therapist is to diagnose you and to give you a treatment plan versus a more customer centric approach of it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Let's just find out what you need. And if it isn't a 15 minute therapy session, and it's only a 15 minute therapy session, then then stop being in this box where it all has to meet certain code requirements or has to meet what maybe the insurance requires. Talk a little bit about your venture into being customer centric. Okay, so uh, that was another thing that I did that made it different. So um, to their clients, and especially in the beginning, they come and sometimes they need an hour and a half. You need an hour and a half just for you to do triage and for them to just be able to vent and explain to you what their needs are. Fine. I'm available for that. And um, but then there are times when they just want to touch base and they, they just need like 30 minutes. They, they just want to touch base and say, hey, you know, I'm going through this and I'm, I need to make a decision. I need to make this decision quickly. And um, I just want to check. This is what I'm thinking based on everything that I've told you, should I kind of go that way or should we, should I just not make that decision right now? And should I stop? All they need is 30 minutes. I'm available for that. So it, it, it has to be, again, we go back to client centric. What is the need of this client? Why, why would they want, why would they want to talk to me for an hour when all they need is maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And that you have to just have to be malleable. And it can't be so stringent because then you're not really doing what you set out to do, which is help others. Yep. And what are some of the pressures that come in this industry kind of pushing therapists to be more or less customer-centric? What are some of those pressures? A lot of those pressures are, we go back to operations, policies and procedures. The policy is that you know, the client needs to come in. The policy is that you need to have a, a you know, 60 minute uh, session. The policy is that, you know, so if you're gonna have somebody sitting there and not talking to you, what is the point? <laughs> you know? Is that coming from companies' policies? Is that coming from the payers? Is that coming from the regulators? Where is that coming from? All of the above? The, uh, all of the above, okay. all of the above, right. All of the above. And so what happens is that that's a deterrent. Because if a client doesn't have an hour, if a client, they'd rather not have their session. Mm -hmm. So how are you serving them? How is that helping? 
And so that's a, that's a really big one. That's a real big concern. And it, it's not necessary. You want to be able to, you know, just be able to offer them what, what they need. Again, I have to go back to that, you know? Yeah. So talk okay. a little bit about some of the innovative things that you've come across in terms of outreach. You know, you talked about the fact that we need to get upstream. We need to help people feel comfortable with taking the step of, of getting counseling or getting therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I'll repeat a statistic I say often, which is people wait 10 years on average after mental health symptoms appear before they reach out for help. And 60% of the people never reach out for help. And a lot of that is just because of the stigma. So what are some innovations that you've discovered where we can get upstream and get access or get involved in people earlier? So right now there's a really big, I think there's been an increase in the need for behavioral health. Um, I have to tell you three years ago, being in therapy was a stigma. It was so stigmatized and people were like, well, I'm not crazy, so I don't need therapy. Okay, so one of the things that I do with my clients that we're going, I'm going a little bit backwards here is that I don't diagnose. And I always tell them, if I'm going to give you a diagnosis, it's only for the purpose of insurance. So they come in and they're okay, you know, like after the second session, they're like, okay, so what's my diagnosis? I'm like, a a diagnosis would be a crutch and I'm not giving you that. So for the purpose of insurance, I have to give you a diagnosis, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to diagnose you as. I'm going to diagnose you as somebody who needs some guidance, somebody who needs some help, and we're going to be working on that. How's that for a diagnosis? <laughs> and they're like, I use that as a crutch, oh. can you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, okay. I just saw, you know, especially in the beginning of my practice, I just saw, you know, people are like, oh, so, you know, I'm, I'm depressed. So that's why I do that. And that's why I drink a lot. And that, well, that's not going to change your behavior. Right. So the, it, it just became a crutch. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm not giving you that crutch. So that's where I usually start. And, and then you have to kind of, it, it just keeps evolving, right? And you, you keep talking, you have to look at everything. And when you're running, if, if, it's a, if it's an organization, when you're running this, you want to be able to teach your staff not to be so stuck on those operations and those procedures. You know, what can we do to change them and stay within the guidelines, you know, Unethical is unethical, and that's very clear, but not everything, just because you make a change doesn't make it unethical. Yeah. Do you see? So we want to be able to have like an, a, a level plane where we can be creative, we can be innovative, we can start making tweaks and changes that are going to meet our clients, and we're going to be able to operate under the best of ethics. You see, and mm-hmm. yeah, not being inappropriate, not, you know, because there are things that are inappropriate under any circumstance, yeah. but not everything is unethical, not everything is inappropriate. And we can, within those constraints, be able to um, to operate and, and be, be more customer centric, be and be more effective, customer centric and more effective. Yeah. A client and, and- is not going to come. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. A client is not going to come to you if they if it, it if it's more of a hardship. If you're making it more difficult for them to get to you. So, what does the customer need? Why why would they come to you? You know, am I healthy enough to take care of this person? So, you want to look at everything and then 
you're going to see that practices will grow. And that 60% is probably going to go down to maybe like 20%. Because the reason why people don't seek help was one, because of the stigma. But I think that has lifted. And two is because it's a time. It, it's, it's time. So, you know, I offer my client, uh, I have, and not right, not at the moment, but I had a client that had three children who had autism. And she says, I, I need to see you, but I cannot see you anytime after like 8 a.m. So can we, can we do, do our session for 7 a.m.? Absolutely, because the kids are up at eight. Yeah, so you have to be flexible. You know, you have to be able to offer that flexibility. Um, can I see you at nine o'clock at night? Do I want to be up at nine? You know, do I want to be doing a session at nine? No, but this, if this is what the client needs. So if you're running an organization, can you have a night staff? Yeah. Do you have somebody who can only work like after hours? You know, being able to offer that, the, the, you know, a, a longer or a bigger gamut of time of, you know, and that goes with understanding your clients. Well, and it goes back to what you said about being effective. And, and let's talk a little bit about being effective, because I've said for years that of all the things there is to do in healthcare, mm -hmm. there's nothing more difficult than helping people change behavior. It's easier to give you an artificial heart than it is to help you make the changes. And I'm not talking about little simple changes. I'm talking about complex lifestyle changes that are gonna help you enjoy life better. Talk a little bit about what you find as a therapist to be most successful in helping people make change, long-term change, not just mm -hmm. change for a week or two, but actually implement complex behavior changes. What are some of the techniques that work best? Okay. Let, let's take some steps back. You know, we, as therapists believe in mindset and in being and in being able to be malleable to change. I have never met such stringent, <laughs> uncompromising people than us. We are like so stuck to the rules and the procedures <laughs> and the right. We are so stuck, but we want we want to help people change. Well, it it, it has to start home. We yeah. need to start with being able to change. So uh, I want to start there. Um, to, but to answer the question, um, we, we help people again by understanding people are not going to make changes, Daryl, until they're not uncomfortable, until it doesn't hurt them. So being able, and I have to tell you, even my own family members, I have an uncle who has diabetes and he's like, oh no, I'm an insulin, so I can have more cake. Dude, are you kidding me? <laughs> so sometimes when you offer when you offer a solution, you need to make sure that those life changes are in place, which is one of the reasons why I hate the diagnosis. I'm giving you a diagnosis, I'm giving you a crutch, and I'm not giving you a crutch. So for people to make change, they have to be uncomfortable. And when, it, when it's actually painful to them, would they be willing to make the change? So that and I and I tell them that and sometimes they they come in with complaints 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 and I'm like okay um is it uncomfortable yet I hear you change complaining. is hard yeah change is hard change is hard and <clears throat> sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know so even though you're uncomfortable it has to be painfully uncomfortable for people to make the change but I'll have to tell you for the most part 
they may change when you have them face their demon. Mm -hmm. When they face their demon, and that's what I do. I help them to, but, and I do the same thing with the organization. Is this uncomfortable enough? Are you really reaching, you, you're, you're stressing about numbers, but are you really doing enough outreach? Do you really, if, if your patient falls off, are you really doing the follow-up? What are you doing? Where are, the, where are the areas that you're not addressing before you get your heart transplant? Yeah. Yeah. And before, like, why do we have to go there before? Why does there have to be a pandemic for the numbers to go up? Do you see? Yeah. So what are we doing? Are we doing everything we can before it gets to that point? Right. Well, Dr. Daniela, we are about out of time, but I'd love to give you a few minutes to maybe summarize or conclude or say any closing remarks, as well as share how someone might be able to get in touch with you. Okay, so my takeaway is be malleable and be um, open to making the changes that you need, not only to service your clients, but I have to tell you, happy clients makes a happy organization, makes a happy because that's what, what we want. We want to have results and we want happy clients. So that makes us happy. Yeah. So that's where, that's my takeaway. Uh, and um, then lastly is, yeah, if you want to get a hold of me, um, you go on my site, drnildaperez.com, and I can give you a free 30-minute consultation and we can go over what your needs are. And, you know, then you could decide whether you want to work with me, but I will promise you, even if you don't, you're going to, you're going to have a takeaway. You're going to, you're going to get something out of it. Great. And yeah. is that Dr. Dr. Dot or just Dr. Nilda no. Perez? It's Dr. No Dot. Dr. Nilda, N-I-L-D-A, Perez.com. Nice. Awesome. Dr. Perez, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for being a part of this Aspirational Care podcast. And uh, we'll sign up and tell everybody goodbye. Okay, bye-bye. And thanks for having me.